Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome to the 10% True Podcast. Quick message from me before you get stuck in. This podcast is free, so there's no advertising. I don't monetize it on YouTube. You don't have to sit through any annoying adverts, and I don't even ask for any money through Patreon. But if you could, in exchange for that, drop me a like, leave a comment, share my content, and if you're listening to the podcast version, maybe leave a review of the channel, that would be hugely appreciated. It will help me to grow my audience, which is really what I'm trying to achieve. Anyway, with that, I'll let you get back to listening. Enjoy. Denny, welcome back to 10% True. It's great to have you on the channel again. Steve, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me again. I am surprised, you know, I, I hope I've helped your readership and your your, your viewers uh, as, as they listen to me drone on. <laughs> but the 104 is an exciting aircraft for me to talk about. I've had some absolutely wonderful experiences flying in the airplane, met terrific people. This is this is something to to look forward to then. So so just for everybody's understanding, if you are tuning in, there are three previous episodes with Denny as you've uh, as Denny's already referenced. If you haven't caught up on those, watch those first because we're kind of doing things in chronological order. Um, and I, I should be honest and say we did actually we did actually talk about F one hundred four before, didn't we? Um, uh, but I didn't publish it because I think there was a sense that we we rushed it a little bit. So what we're doing here because we care about. The quality of um, the podcast and and Denny cares about um, telling the story in the way that he's happy with is we're re-recording, and uh, which means it should be flawless. And I can see, uh, Denny, you've brought some props along too, uh, which you're presumably going to use during the course of this conversation. So, um, so, so Denny, you, uh, if I remember correctly, because it's been a couple of weeks since we talked, you got to the F one hundred four by going to Luke and becoming part of the fighter weapons school for the F-104, is that correct? That's exactly right. I had just finished flying the F-105 at McConnell Air Base in, in Kansas, and uh, the Air Force uh, had made the decision to uh, essentially uh, transfer those aircraft to the National Guard and to the Air Force Reserve. And, uh, and I was lucky enough to uh, be able to fly the F-104 at Luke. And I began that uh, in July of uh, uh, 1972 uh, at, uh, at Luke. And uh, that was my, my, my last flight uh, in the F-105. Uh, 
And the first uh, first several sorties that I flew at Loop, the most 70 of them, uh, was learning how the, their technique of teaching people to become instructor pilots in the aircraft at, at Luke Air Force Base. And uh, my initial job after I got checked out as an instructor in the F-104 was training uh, not all, but mostly German young, young pilots that had just under, finished their undergraduate pilot training program in the T-37 and T-38. And we were introducing them at Luke Air Force Base into the F-104. First, checking them out in the airplane, making sure they could fly. But then began the whole process of teaching them the entire syllabus of how the F-104 was being used. And that included uh, uh, basic, basic uh, uh, flying, of course, but then uh, air to air, where we're teaching them basic fighter maneuvers, advanced combat tactics, and uh, the how, how to actually f f first fly the aircraft, but then learning how to fight with it at loop. But we also taught them uh, being able to navigate low level in the F-104 for air to ground delivery uh, with uh, conventional weapons, but also with nuclear weapons. And so we taught them the, the, the full range of all of the things that they could be called upon by the German Air Force once they got assigned back back home in Germany. So if we unpack that a little bit then, uh, when we talk about fighter weapons school today, we sort of think of that PhD level, um, Nellis-based six-month program or year-long program, I can't remember how long it is, where you know you you end up a real master in, of your trade and you you go there having already you know been a Ford ship flight lead and and have some experience um so this sort of fighter weapon school was um a sort of combined learn to fly the airplane learn to employ the airplane and then go back to your unit type thing rather than graduate as a phd level student in the airplane uh actually there were two different programs that we're talking about here uh the the fighter weapon school was a separate unit and, uh, and, and, uh, they, and we had two courses there. We had a long course that essentially uh, was this PhD level course that you're talking about. But this was for people who were already weapons instructors in their own squadrons back in Germany. And uh, they would be assigned a loop. Uh, we had Canadians on board. We had uh, uh, folks from Holland were there. And so, but that was kind of a different unit. This, the first part that I was involved in was, was basically teaching second lieutenants uh, that were essentially first flying the aircraft. That was their first assignment out of pilot training. And I did that for about a year and a half and, and, and then got, set, got picked to go through the fighter weapons school course itself and then they chose me to lead it. <laughs> and so I, I wound up leading this uh, uh, group of folk. Uh, but, and that came uh, oh, probably uh, uh, halfway through my tour at, uh, at Luke Air Force Base. And uh, it, it, it was interesting. The aircraft, all the aircraft were uh, uh, painted with U.S. markings. But they were actually owned 
by the German government. Okay. And uh, and my salary uh, was paid for by the Germans uh, to the U.S. It was kind of an interesting arrangement. What what was the airplane like then? From a so, so if you you're if we deal with the first part first, so you're a German a pilot who's just graduated from flying the T thirty eight. What was the transition like from the T thirty eight to the to the F one hundred four for those for those students of yours then? I don't think I I didn't see any trouble at all with those people. The T thirty eight was a wonderful aircraft to be able to teach people how to fly a Century Series aircraft. Uh, the T thirty eight accelerator very fast and wrong. Uh, it handled well. It rolled very. The, the, the rolling rate on T thirty eight is uh, is phenomenal. If you don't watch yourself and you put that stick full to the left or to the right, you're going to bang your head on a cockpit. It's just. Uh, I mean, it just. It'll really. You know, very responsive. The F one hundred four. There were some aspects of that because the high T tail here. Uh, that. Uh, you can get yourself in some trouble if you don't uh, pay attention to what you're doing. And, uh, but the people had, you know, in terms of being able to take off and land the aircraft, I don't remember any problem with any of the students that were coming out of the UPT to be able to step into that machine and fly it. Well, were those problems then, uh, in terms of the high detail, were they similar to the ones that you had talked about? I think you talked about with the voodoo. Um, yeah, um, airflow blanking, blanking, or something similar to that. Uh, what, what was the issue then with the high T-tail for the F one hundred four? It's a, a it's true for any aircraft with a high tail like that. And if you get the angle of attack up high enough, you're going to get a downwash on the tail, and it'll push the nose way up. They call that a pitch up. And so there were veins that were added to the sides of the fuselage. I'll grab my S model. There were veins that were added to the sides of the fuselage in here on either side that would measure the angle of attack that the aircraft had, but at the same, or the rate of movement. Oh, there goes my canopy. <laughs> and so, in any event, uh, uh, there were mechanical devices that were added to the machine to help alleviate that issue and warn you that you're about to get into uh, an area that the aircraft was going to do things on its own. And, uh, uh, and that was uh, something that I specifically taught, especially to all my students, but more in a fire weapons school because they're uh, more often more apt to get into some of these uh, higher, higher maneuvering areas with lower speed that uh, put you in, uh, into an area of, of, of a problem. Uh, the F-101 had the same problem. Uh, there were a lot of F-101 pilots that actually died uh, learning about this phenomenon called pitch-up. But once you understood how, uh, how this, uh, this, this behaved back here with this angle of attack, uh, the aircraft itself, if you maneuvered it and, and paid attention to what the which what the nose was doing on you uh it turned out to be a, a, basically a non-issue hmm. what was the uh, I, and i know it's been a long time so you might not remember the the figures but what sort of performance um 
limits did it have? How fast could it go? How fly, how high could you get it? Where was it? Where was it designed to operate as well? So obviously, nuclear emission has, there's a low level component to that. Um, well, actually, the very first F-104, the A models, were all designed as air-to-air interceptors. They were designed by Kelly Johnson to be able to take off and it would be loaded with uh, AIM-9 uh, Sidewinder missiles and it had a radar on it that was to be able to go out and find a Russian bomber and, and shoot it down. So it was, a, it was an air defense interceptor initially. Later, as the uh, uh, availability of the aircraft became fairly known, they strengthened the, the wings and added hard points for uh, air-to-ground uh, weaponry that could be loaded on the aircraft. That became the C model. I never flew either of these aircraft. Uh, matter of fact, the C models, uh, they flew those. Uh, they sent the... You know, a bunch of them over to South Vietnam, and they were they were used as uh, air-to-air fighters uh, escort for the uh, people going up into North Vietnam. And uh, but there were, you know, by the time I got uh, to Vietnam in the F-105, the F-104s are gone. Mm. They had already been pulled back. But the uh, German Air Force, uh, as it was recon- being reconfigured, um, was looking for an aircraft to replace the F-84. Uh, after the German Air Force was reconstituted, uh, and uh, there were they went through this uh, a, a fair uh, search, and and there was a bit of a. Uh, 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 discussion going on within the German Air Force of what kind of aircraft that they were looking for. And the, the, the senior leadership within the Luftwaffe realized that uh, what they were looking for, actually looking for in the mission that they were going to be assigned was an air-to-ground mission, not an air-to-air day fighter. And it turns out the F-104 is absolutely perfectly suited to be an aircraft that would be could be loaded with a nuclear weapon that could fly very fast at very long range at low level uh, for this uh, uh, nuclear strike delivery capability uh, that they were looking for, and that's where the F-104G model came in, and that's you can recognize recognize the G model. Because it has a single stray down here, right at the bottom. There's only one ah, right okay. there. Yeah. And it's fairly long. And it's for uh, increased ability at higher speeds, at you know, high Mach numbers. That's, that's the purpose of this thing. And this is showing a – let's get this thing turned here. Oh, yeah. You can see my nuke that's but loaded on here. Is that a B-61? That's a B-61, and it's configured in a, a typical strike package that uh, you, you would have seen if you were, as I did later on, uh, go to the strike squadrons and, uh, and to evaluate them. So this is how it was loaded or created. 
And if you, again, if you look at the airplane, there's not much drag. Hmm. It's, it is a, you know, the front area is pretty low. And this thing will go a very, and it's very, very stable at high speeds, even at low level. Um, is the, is, the is, is S the, model, the S model you can recognize because it has two additional ventral strakes, ventral fins added on the outside. Again, these are added for higher at the higher speeds. And the S model stands for sparrow. And it had, they added the additional hard, two additional hard points uh, on, and so it had a total of nine. Hmm. So the air defense guys could, they took the gun out of the S model for the air defense guys. Uh, the, the air to ground guys or the nuke guys retained the gun. And uh, the, the uh, aircraft uh, could be carry two Sparrow missiles plus either four or six, depending upon what pylons that they decided to load those on with uh, sidewinders. So as an air defense, they, and they, they kept that in, in the inventory in Italy for, you know, for quite some time. With the Italians, uh, we'll get back to flying the airplane in a minute, but, but you've, you've mentioned the S, S model, so let's talk about it. But with the Italians the only operators to use the S model? Oh, no, the, the Turks had them as well. Okay. Uh, I, th I think the Italians had the preponderance of them, but I think there was a, a, a rough, I think roughly 60 of them went to uh, Turkey. To Turkey as well. How, how, how good was it? And one of the things that I, I immediately think of is uh, detection range for a radar or power output for a radar is is proportional to the size of the in, the the diameter of the uh, radar antenna. Um, you've very uh, amply demonstrated there that it's a pencil thin design. So how far could that radar see out to support uh, a Sparrow missile in flight? I mean, were you getting the same sort of um, engagement ranges from an F one hundred four S as you would do something else carrying a, a Sparrow? Um, any any other fighter design? I mean, I'm thinking. I was thinking F-16, the ADF versions, the F-15, the F-18, but that's slightly unfair because they had more advanced radars. But in terms of detection ranges, um, was there uh, a similar capability between those those airplanes? Actually, they wound up with a different radar. Uh, the, the G model radar uh, or the G model uh, was not designed to fire a sparrow. Uh, you, you could only fire uh, sidewinders. Uh, with a G model, and the uh, radar sweep and the uh, G model, if, if you look at the radar scope itself, you've got the bronze scope, the, the, the sweep was like this. In the S model, you could hit a switch, and they had a better radar, and it was designed for uh, actually for the Sparrow itself. So you could fire a radar uh, missile as compared to only uh, a heat seeker. And the on on your bronze scope, instead of having the sweep going like this, with the S model, you could switch it so it would go back and forth with what we call a B-scan, which we had in Air Defense Command. The, the, the people in the F-106 and the F-102 the, the sweep was like that. And the beauty part of that is 
if you're getting in close on a, this type of a sweep and down here, you're gonna you're gonna be down in where there's a lot of clutter, uh, and, and it is very difficult to tell the the uh, what direction it, the blip is. On a B scope, as you get down in range, and here's the center. When you get down over here, you 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 can tell he's right over there. It's a, it's a, you get a, a a lot clearer picture. So, so was it uh, an effective solution in the F one hundred four S? Could could you because you, you know so you've got with the sparrow with the sparrow you have to continue illuminating the target with the um, radar from the aeroplane because the sparrow is going to home in on the radar reflections from that transmission. You've got two missiles, presumably not massive range in terms of being able to to target something. Um, was it an effective solution? Uh, as as a sort of carrier of the sparrow then was, was it was it good for its time was it good by other standards was it impressive or not well i uh, actually to be fair i i never actually flew with the air to air guys and, and that was a different squadron at at Rimini. that was two three squadron and i was flying in 102 uh, uh stormo which was the or grupo uh which is uh the air to ground guys. This this was this is a squadron I flew it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and uh, that, with the uh, S model. And <clears throat> but to answer your question directly, I think that uh, 104 uh, for the defense role that was well suited for that. It could carry a. It could. It had pretty decent range. Uh, the S model. Uh, the range was wrong. I think almost uh, eight hundred miles. Oh. You know, so I mean, it's where, where was all the fuel carried? Uh, where was it? Yeah, uh, external tanks exter mostly. External fuel tanks plus internal fuel. You know, where, and where was the internal fuel then? I mean, it doesn't look like there's space to carry any because the the, oh, wi where? the wings are razor thin, so there was no there were no wing tanks. Oh, it presumably. was yeah, the, yeah. The fuel was carried up and. You know, and fuel tanks right, right, you know, right along the fuselage and on top. And, and that would give um, that would give you eight hundred miles. So, but what about what was the range then? If you weren't carrying those tanks, I mean, let's say you had to combat jettison. I'm asking you a question. I'm asking you about parametrics that are probably dim and distant in your memory. But if you had to combat jettison those fuel tanks, you know, how much internal well, fuel range did you get? There was a little bit of a difference between a two seater and a single seater. A two seater on the G model. Uh, uh, the internal fuel was, uh, uh, I think it was 5,200 pounds. And uh, the F, the two-seater, the F model, TF model, I, I think you went down to 4,800 because uh, they used up some of the space for a gas tank for the second seat. And, uh, and, and, and that would, uh, if, if you're taking off in a, a clean aircraft with, only internal fuel and going on a Mach 2 run, uh, as we did at Luke Air Force Base, every one of these airplanes uh, pulling out the line and uh, cleaning tanks off. And, and you know, on a two seater, it was stuff a pilot in the front seat, and I'd climb in the back seat, and off we would go. It'd be a fairly short mission. You take off and climb up at a fairly steep angle. Uh, run out, get up to 35,000 feet, put the, shove the throttle up, go in an afterburner, 
and it'll run amok too. And uh, when I got and, and the fuel controller and the J seventy nine engine on this machine was rather interesting because once you you get to Mach two, you can actually push it past Mach two to about two point two, and eventually you're going to get this what's called a slow light, which because the temperature uh, is uh, leading edge temperature and the canopy pressures and so on. Uh, they're the designer saying slow this thing down. So come on an afterburner and pull the nose up, and I've been up to fifty-five thousand feet in that thing uh, with a student, and uh, and then slowly roll over and point the nose right straight back at Luke Air Force Base and come back uh, and land uh, maybe thirty-four minutes. Wow. <laughs> How how do you how do you do that then in terms of the navigation? Did you have like a a direction finder? Were you using TACAN or something like that? Because at Mark II, I don't know. I'm not going to try and do the maths in public. But you're traveling. You're traveling lots of miles every minute, and presumably you can't see at 55,000 feet. You can't see Luke, um, or maybe it's a little speck. But how would you actually know where to go? We use TACAN, but it also had a Doppler. Uh, navigation system, and so you can you dial up your home plate, and a needle would point to it and tell you how yeah. far away how far away it is. But we, yeah, we were principally using TACAN. Okay. You said that you uh, were teaching the German students. Then, if we go back to the sort of the the initial role that you had, so you were teaching the German students how to fly and fight the aeroplane. What, what strengths and weaknesses did it have in, in that area then? So obviously it was fast, you um, had range. Was it maneuverable? Was it something that you would probably want not to get into a dogfight with? Uh, what was your opinion of it? Well, in, in terms of uh, its role in air to ground, it was almost identical in my mind to flying the F-105, but it was uh, the, the, the handling control qualities of the aircraft were excellent. Uh, the uh, the roll rate was just absolutely fine, uh, and in terms of this maneuverability to be able to get uh, uh, weapons on the ground, it, it, it was it was it was certainly suitable. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and, and was it something that so were you flying against I don't know F eighty fours F eighty sixes other Century Series fighters? Did the, those German students get exposure to dissimilar? types during no not or not or not with us they may have back in germany once the but uh, at luke we were the, the air-to-air fighting we were teaching them was first these basic maneuvers of how you fly an aircraft teaching these things called a high speed or a low speed yo-yo mm-hmm. where you're attacking an aircraft and if you're uh, if you need a little bit of extra energy you can pull to, pull to the inside of the turn and then come back up that's a low speed yo-yo, high speed yo-yo. You come in really fast, and and you want to get out of higher up to to slow things down so you can get a, your nose on on the you know. So we were teaching those sort of things, but it was all F one hundred four against F one hundred four. What were the what were the common mistakes that you would see out of students? Then what sort of things did they? You, I mean, you said that they didn't struggle to transition. You know, administratively, let's say the administrative phases of flight from from a, a T thirty eight to an F one hundred four. But what did they struggle with tactically? 
I think that, well, it depends on whether you know, an air to air it's uh, as learning the, the process of being able to maneuver the aircraft around uh, and, and, and being able to feel what the airplane is telling you. Because at the same time, uh, developing a sight picture of what it is that you're looking for. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and essentially the same thing for air to ground. Uh, it, it's, it's just a learning process. It's, it's, it's not that much, to, well, trying to teach someone how to play golf. Uh, you know, how, how you hold your body, and how, you, how you swing at this uh, ball is, is all a, a learned process. It's, you can talk about it all day long, but you actually have to do it in order to be able to uh, to learn it, and 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 then while they're in the process of, of doing this, um, I, I try not to be too chatty in in the cockpit, blowing in his ear, uh, but uh, at the same time instructing him, you know, pull, put the nose down a little bit more, pull it a little bit tighter. Okay, so that this is the side picture you're looking for. Uh, if you get yourself in this other one, now you got to do this other thing. And so uh, it, it was basically helping them develop a feel for what it was that they were about. I I might be um, sort of exposing my limited geography knowledge here, but I think Luke's in Arizona, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Right outside, it's just a little bit west of Phoenix. So, so from a obviously from a German Air Force point of view. Um, European weather notoriously bad. You 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 would have known that, and uh, of course they 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 would have had to sort of live with that. How did the training from a weather point of view work then? Because if you're teaching them low level navigation, it's one thing to do it over Texas, where presumably it's sunny most of the time, um, pretty good weather most of the time, and and another thing altogether to come back to Europe and then try and do that in in weather. What did you do to prepare them for that, or was there a separate a program that they would then go through when they got back to Germany to um, expose them to, to that particular hazard? Yes, it was. Uh, the, uh, the course, the reason why the, the Germans have had them trained, being trained in Germany or in uh, Arizona in the first place is because of that fine weather, terrific access to gunnery ranges, air-to-air ranges, and so on. And you could build a predictable pattern and a predictable time of, the, of accomplishing all of these training uh, uh, sorties and these syllabuses. But once they graduated from our program at Luke, they went to uh, air base in Jever in Northern Germany to become acclimated to uh, the poorer weather conditions that exist in Europe. We'll we'll get into because uh, obviously you end up going to Europe. Um, we'll get into that in a bit then. But but can we just talk um, a little bit about then this your move after sort of eighteen months or so to the fighter weapons school, going through first as a student and then becoming the the, the commander of that. Um, again, I'm showing my ignorance, but I suppose that's the point of these conversations, isn't it? That that um, you know you're you're learning, but. When did the fighter weapon school concept start, um, and, and and where did the F one hundred four program sit in within that? Again, today we're used to seeing fighter weapon school principally being based out at Nellis in in Nevada, um, and and they're all together. The different schools are all together, so I guess they can sort of pull resources and share knowledge and that kind of stuff. 
But where did the F-104 weapon school come from and where does it sort of sit in the history of the, of the weapon school as a whole? It uh, basically uh, started, I, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not sure about the history of the development of the F-104 uh, fighter weapon school, but it was a, it was a, a German Air Force, U.S. Air Force uh, uh, fighter weapon school. And so as the F-104 was uh, developed, I'm sure it's probably about the time when uh, after a year or two, the, the leadership at that time decided to form it, but it was that form at Loop. Uh, I don't know that there was a F-104 uh, uh, fighter weapon school at Nellis. Okay. Uh, there, there may have been, but I th- this part I'm ignorant about. I, I, I don't know. But so, if the, ours was at loot, and our, our we had a our, our own unique uh, fighter weapon school patch that uh, very similar to the design of the one up at uh, at Nellis, but we did certainly did not. We wanted to. Uh, keep some of the attributes that they had, but we had our own that was, uh, that the guys probably wore. And, you know, and in terms of its capability of what we taught, we taught the exact, the, the syl- core syllabuses that we developed at Loop uh, were, uh, in the fire weapons school, were no different than what they were teaching in the F-4 or F-111 fighter weapons schools up at Nellis. You, you, you've already given a, an example of that. You talked about the pitch-up and the fact that if you were uh, experienced, you were more likely to get into that regime and experience that. Well, what sort of other things were, or, or what sort of other things was the fighter weapon school teaching guys about? Um, did you do a lot of electronic warfare type stuff? Um, was it all about tactics? What other elements were there to the syllabus? Yeah, we, uh, as a matter of fact, there was a couple of things that we did. Uh, there were some... Uh, one, one, well, we this, we talked the entire spectrum of the use of the aircraft by the weapons instructors back in Germany. So we had courses that uh, refinements and uh, nuclear weapons delivery procedures and tactics. Uh, we had you know, a fair amount in air to ground uh, with conventional weapons, whether dive bomb uh, shooting rockets. Uh, we would experiment with different tactics from people coming in at different angles and timing to create confusion on the ground and, uh, and, and maybe create some timing issues for the people on the ground. And, and, and so we, we spent a fair amount of time with that. We also spent a lot of time uh, in the air-to-air uh, uh, change because, as you know, the F-104 has a very high wing-loaded aircraft. And it's, it's, it's really not a dogfighter at all. But that doesn't mean you can't fight with it. And, and, and uh, what we learned how to do is to create tactics where instead of attacking an, air, an aircraft and coming in, trying to come in at the tail end, we were teaching tactics where we would come down like this, high and strafing our target and then busting right on through. And if the aircraft uh, turned and saw us, we could just run out. Hmm. This air, I could get this airplane from cruise at 19,000 feet, the VMAX on a deck over 800 knots, 
in 19 seconds. I mean, it would it would move, and uh, and and, and uh, you know, so if they came down, we're gone. We're gonna outrun anything they got loaded on that airplane. There's just no way they're gonna hit us. And uh, and so we were teaching these tactics. And if the aircraft continued its turn, we are already really fast. We had a lot of energy on the aircraft. Come back up into the fight, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and we taught with a particular maneuver called a butterfly. And uh, it, it was a, a, a maneuver that uh, took advantage of the tactics uh, that you could develop with the F-102, uh, F-104. A lot of our flights were, instead of flying wing, where you're, you're like this, we were flying abreast. And, uh, okay. and and self-supporting each other as well as being able to uh, uh, take advantage of the of the speed and power of the F one hundred four. So, if you're coming downhill on them, the obvious question then is: What sort of performance did the radar have uh, against ground clutter? How far out could you pick up a fighter-sized target that was lower than you? You mean for the for air to air or uh, yeah for air to air. So if if you've got if you're going to bounce a couple of you know a couple of fighters over oh, here, you're going to well, come I, from up high. Yeah, we 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 weren't working uh, radar missiles. We were uh, the, uh, at that time we were load, basically would be loaded with sidewinder. But but uh, you weren't you weren't using your onboard radar to find these guys. You were using GCI or no, just visual. You, yeah, we're, yeah. Huh? You, it was, Initially, you could you, you could sweep and, and see them, uh, but again, in the, in the fire weapon school, we had machine models, and so we had this this A scan scope, and, uh, and and, and uh, if they were out far enough, you could see them. Uh, but we eventually got to the point where we're pretty much looking for them visually. So am I right in thinking then, or, or inferring then, that, that that radar was principally a, a ground mapping radar or, or a, a, you know, so that's that's the utility of the radar. It's for navigating when you were low to the ground rather than really using it to find um, bad guys in the air? Yeah, exactly right. It was, a, it was really designed for uh, uh, searching the ground, looking for, you know, radar, your... your uh, navigation path so, so did you on, on the air-to-air side of things then did you have visiting units from across the u.s who would come and give you exposure to different you know different platforms you've said that you're not a dogfighter you're going to do these slashing attacks so you, you don't want to get into a turning fight so um you know did you try to get into a turning fight to show them you know, the futility to, of, of trying to do that, or were your, again, were, were all your flights against other F-104s? Well, as it turns out that uh, uh, I had a friend of mine, Earl Henderson, that was uh, the commander of the aggressor uh, squadron up at Nellis when I was leading the F-104 fighter weapons school, and I called up Earl one day, and I said, hey, Earl, are you interested in coming down to fight us? And he jumped at the chance, came down. And so, yeah, they came down with his uh, T-38s, and, uh, and we did uh, we did fly against them. Uh, they were shocked to find out the first air-to-air engagements. Uh, we took a lot of pictures of T-38s coming right <laughs> straight down 
looking at the cockpit and right through the pipe. And, and they, they were used to turning around, trying to look backwards at, at seeing somebody come up their tailpipe. That wasn't where we were. <laughs> So how how did you how did you orchestrate that then? So if you you're not using your onboard radar, you're not sort of building a picture from twenty thirty miles out. Um, are you are you using GCI to position you and talk your eyes onto these guys? What was the? No, we didn't use GCI at all. It was uh, yeah, we did we we did try to uh, figure out where they were by taking a peek at the radar, but uh, once but. We were really aiming at, uh, and we would use that to be able to position ourselves in, in, in uh, altitude-wise and in diagonal, whatever the geometry we wanted to be able to uh, to engage the battle. But we were working with our eyes and uh, with the, uh, you know, what the what the what the, what the at, of course those attack. We're we're going after them with a gun. Hmm. And uh, this wonderful uh, uh, Vulcan cannon in there that you know, rounds a second. You uh, obviously are not using a heads-up display in the f- format that is common today, where you've got a funnel that tells you, tells you where the rounds are going to fall and, and so on. So you had a lead computing optical site, something not yeah, not a million it, miles away from what they were flying in Mustangs in, in World War Two, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it did have a lead computing uh, gun sight in it, and uh, uh, the work. Well, one of the things I taught specifically in this uh, F-104 is that we're going back to this word called pitch-up. And I, I knew we're dealing with people that are uh, weapons instructors in their own fire squadrons, and so their, their task at home was to be able to help uh, 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 teach their pilots, their line pilots, uh, you know how to, how to use the airplane. Some of the guys were were, were kind of nervous uh, of, of getting an airplane really slow, and so one of the tech techniques that I used and I taught my own you know, fire pilots to, to to use this was to put the student in a position to weapons instructor, they're in the front seat, I'm in the back seat, and get the airplane going, and then point it straight up, and uh, and, and to let it run out of airspeed, and and, and, they, and then tell them to lock the stick, don't touch the throttle, keep your feet off the rudders, <laughs> and just let the airplane go up, and watch the airspeed come right down to zero, and I tell them, you're going to hear a lot of heavy breathing from your <laughs> students when they do this. But the nose is going to fall down, and the pointy end is going to go straight down. And then you just take your time and recover from the dive. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I put them in a place where it's an extraordinarily uncomfortable position to be, you know, but taught them how to work your way through the uh, Having been put into the position, what do you do? And uh, and, and and so I, I I helped them. And so whether or not you happen to be slightly like this or like that, it was you know you, you just lock the control, don't touch nothing, and and let it fall. Did, did the airplane have any other sort of foibles like that? Then were were there any other parts of the envelope that people were a little bit fearful about? Uh, the, the, 
Yeah, especially coming back in Atlanta because the uh, once you get the gear down, the the the, the, uh, uh, the pusher is not going to work. Uh, it, it would work if you're with the wheels up, but if they're down, you know that 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 aspect uh, is uh, taken away from you. And the reason for that is that uh, if you're turning base to final, and you're running a little bit on the slow side, and the airplane decides decides that uh, it's going to give you a kicker. Uh, that's the, you don't want that to happen right close to the ground, <laughs> you know. So, so uh, many of the pilots would uh, fly the airplane probably a little bit too fast around the base, the final curve, and, and wound up wind up fast, uh, aiming getting towards the runway, and and and. and that can become a problem for you if you develop that habit pattern on a consistent basis. If you run into really fall weather and a wet runway and windy, mm -hmm. uh, you, you probably don't want to have a whole lot of extra energy in the aircraft as you're in that area, you know. So, but uh, some of these things, when the people, when the pilots, you know, that are flying with that were doing this, I might mention it to them just once. Because you know they've, they've they've got to feel comfortable with the aircraft, mm. and uh, and so I just kind of let it go with that. What what, is, what are the challenges of running of landing on a, a, a gosh, get my words out? What are the challenges of landing on a wet runway uh, in, in something like an F one hundred four? Then why is that particularly tricky? Oh, it's a stop getting the thing stopped. You know, if you, I mean, we. Uh, on a normal day, if, uh, if you're down at uh, normal fuel, uh, you're, you're going to be touching down probably around 160 knots. You know, flying final at uh, you know 180, 175 knots, and uh, if you get uh, uh, the higher winds, uh, if you wind up having to you know bank the aircraft down. You're, you're going to want you're going to you're going to need. You're going to be closer to a stall speed, if, uh, if depending upon how much you uh, you've got in there. So your landing techniques uh, could change. But, you know, some some people, if they've got a strong wind coming from the side, would let the airplane cock slightly into the wind, and then just before touchdown, they will kick a nose straight onto you know, you know, and then just drop a wing, just before touchdown. And uh, you know, so there were a lot of techniques like that that uh, that we learned that we, we tried to pass on to our students. Again, must must have been tricky to do wet wet runway landings in um, Texas. Well, there wasn't many. There, there there were some times where we had some pretty heavy rain in Phoenix, uh, but it, it wasn't very often. <laughs> <laughs> A more common part was to have a bet on uh, what day, uh, what time of day you could fry an egg on an F-104. Oh, really? Is that it, true? We, yeah. I yeah, always thought that was I, apocryphal. I, I always thought these sort of stories of, of frying an egg on an F-104 wing were, were sort of apocryphal, but that's true. Matter of fact, the hot the hot weather uh, that presented its own issues uh, Flew several stories carrying a dart uh, for to allow people to actually shoot at the dart, and uh, 
if the temperature got uh, too hot, uh, we, we'd shut off flying uh, because you were basically run out of runway and uh, <laughs> to, to take off. It just you know, and so so they shut it on, uh, roll over the departure end barrier with the uh, wheels on the ground carrying a dart. <laughs> So what 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 typically was the time of day when you could fry an egg on on the wing? Uh, well, it was around the tenth of May normally. Uh, okay. Was, uh, yeah, May uh, in May you could do that. In May, yeah. Wow. Okay. I definitely live in the wrong country. <laughs> so what about the? Um, I mean, we're sort of touching a little bit on you know, your experience of the German pilots. And I know every Air Force wants to say it's got the best pilots and the best training. So this is not a question about that. Um, but obviously the Germans had struggles with the F-104 early on. What were your impressions? And I've heard that attributed to, you know, mismanagement of the aeroplane or not really understanding it or poor techniques. And and and, the, and again, this isn't about naming and shaming and it's not about who's best, but what were your what was your understanding of how their experience had been to date when you started working with them and and what do you think um on reflection was was sort of going on there i think by the time i started there in uh, uh 1976 uh that the history of the crashes and uh, the uh maintenance procedures uh and and and, and operator error um, had pretty much passed, uh, you know. So when when I was flying with them, uh, the first thing I did when I went into the these uh, German fighter squadrons, I said hello to all these people that I had, many of whom I had already known, and, and had flown with that loop either in a fighter weapons school or or as they were uh, undergraduate pilot training graduates, uh, worked with them then, and so I I felt. I'm going, you know, I'm home. I'm in, you know, I knew all these, a lot of these people. Well, in any event, uh, uh, I think a lot of the, the those issues have, have been worked out. I think that the uh, maintenance uh, and the uh, per, uh, availability of spares and, and that sort of thing uh, was was not an issue at all uh, in the German Air Force that I flew with. Uh, and I flew out of uh, three different bases in Germany, uh, one in uh, southern Germany, in Memmingen, near uh, just a, a little bit west of uh, Munich. Uh, and then uh, two of them were up, uh, one near uh, Cologne in, in mid-central uh, Germany, a place called Buschel up in the Eiffel Mountains. Excellent wine country, by the way. And uh, then a little bit further uh, uh, to the west from that is an airbase, uh, Norvenik. And uh, and each of these had uh, fighter squadrons. I flew in, every, in all of them. And uh, I saw very little difference between the, the, the uh, uh, fighter squadrons in Germany uh, they've obviously, guys are wearing different squadron factors, but beyond that, uh, it, it was very common. And, and, and frankly, for me personally, not that much different than if I was flying an F 105 at McConnell Air Base. I mean, the, the behaviors, the attitudes, and the people were 
identical. Hmm. I mean, I, I couldn't tell the difference. Other than the fact you're looking at their uniform and, you know, some of these guys are talking German. <laughs> so, so this is a uh, this is the next part of your sort of story with the 104 isn't it so you were if i remember correctly again you were heading up a, a nuclear operational readiness inspection team uh going around europe is that correct yeah that's exactly right it's part of the uh, eisenhower administration that uh, uh put in place a requirement for uh for all of the units that were uh receiving uh, nuclear weapons to to have uh, a team of people that would verify that their loaders were able to load this uh, nuclear weapon, this wrong one, <laughs> uh, 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 properly. Uh, and, uh, and the pilots were able to navigate to their target that they did their target study properly so that they knew what their target was, what the running heading was, and uh, what the weapon setting was supposed to be for that particular tar- target and to set it up properly. Well, the Eisenhower administration put all that in place in 1955. And so we were just carrying on the exact same thing. I was stationed at uh, uh, just a little uh, east of uh, Rangstein Air Base in, in, in uh, Germany, just north of the French border, uh, not that far from uh, Luxembourg. And um, at, at a, our facility was at a place called Capone uh, Barracks, and it was just uh, outside the city of Kaiserslautern in Germany. And it was from there that we would travel to these various units to do our job. And we had two hats. Uh, one hat was to be the eyes and ears for headquarters shape in Mons, Belgium, to verify that their units that they had on nuclear work were able to do that job. And that was reporting through uh, uh, the, the NATO channels. And, and when we were writing those reports, we were, we were writing in the King's English. <clears throat> we also had a hat on, so I can I still get confused. You know, I was stationed I was stationed in Canada, and and, and so they, you know, it's defense for the sea, or I guess, you know, just <laughs> and so in any event, uh, uh, we also had another hat on. We were. The eyes and ears for headquarters, uh, Yusefi in Ramstein. And our job there was to pick up ideas that the Europeans were using for training and, and, and so on and bring those back to our U.S. units and say, hey, here's a good idea. Uh, you know, think, and, and, uh, and so that, that was our job. And uh, we were on the road very, very frequently. Uh, going to, uh, we, there were, uh, we had a, a base in Holland at a, t- a place called Focal over in uh, eastern Holland, and a place in Belgium at an uh, air base uh, not far from uh, the German border called Kleine Drogel. And, uh, and then uh, the three in Germany that I mentioned, and two in Italy. Uh, one, uh, the, 154 squadron at uh, right outside, not that far from um, 
Milan, Italy. They were flying F-104Gs. And then the F-104S was at Rimini, over on the Adriatic coast, about halfway down from Ravenna. And uh, it was uh, a terrific uh, tourist town, by the way. Uh, great beaches. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so uh, we did a fair amount of travel. Now, the, the behaviors of the squadrons uh, it really did not matter very much uh, what country you're in. I, you know, the, the uh, obviously the people are different, and uh, the, but the, the structure was very much uh, the same, uh, regardless of what country you're in or what unit in what country, that same country. Uh, they're basically, you know, it's a fighter squadron with a bunch of fighter pilots hanging around, and and, uh, and and so that's that was that was my experience. Can we can we go back then to you mentioned it right at the beginning, but it's relevant to this then. Just the nuclear role of the aeroplane, and you've got a you showed us your your model with the B sixty one, the the nuclear uh, bomb on the bottom of it. Um, what? What was the typical profile then of a nuclear strike in an F-104? Were you going to be uh, going on a one-way mission? Were you going to be going out and dropping something and coming back? What, what were you, when you were evaluating these guys, what did the mission profile look like for a one nuclear strike? Uh, it depended upon the target itself. Uh, and, uh, uh, I'm, I wasn't privy to, I, you know, I, 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 I actually didn't pay much attention to the actual target that these guys were sitting on. Uh, our duty is to uh, go into the fighter squadron. Uh, we go into the alert facility and um, uh, I'd ask the uh, pilot for his combat folder and, uh, and then I would ask him to describe to me uh, what the weather is at his target. I would ask him to describe to me what his IP, his initial point is, what the heading is from that IP into the target, how how far is it, how much time, and what kind of a maneuver were you planning on uh, uh, delivering this weapon. And what I was doing is looking at the pilot to find out if he actually paid attention to what was <laughs> in, in, in his profile. And, uh, and and almost always, uh, they knew exactly what was going on. Then I would go up to the aircraft and make sure that this, and of course, I got a, a, a guard right with me because he ain't going to let me out there by my own self and, uh, and make sure that the weapon is set up the way it's supposed to be and that the aircraft is cocked. It's ready to go. And, uh, and, 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 and and that was our job uh, that was laid down by the Eisenhower administration to, to verify that these guys were doing. Now, once in a while, I would run into a, 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 uh, a situation where the pilot was uh, actually not prepared. And uh, when I got into a situation like that, uh, I had a phone call with the wing commander and tell him, hey, you know, Joe Bank of Donuts over here isn't, you know, he's, he's not ready to go, you know. So. <laughs> Joe Bag of Donuts, nice. <laughs> um, what, what, but what did it look like? Were you going to, 
you know, we, we, would you would would the guy take off and then he'd be straight on the Doppler? Would he be? Uh, would it be clock map? Um, you know, compass type dead reckoning navigation. Um, how how long would they be flying for? Would it be a high low high type thing? Do do you remember really what the profiles might look like? Yeah, got- the ones that I saw were all low level. They take off and they had specific uh, on their map. They had a specific headings, specific storm points, times you know, to to be able to maneuver the aircraft around. Uh, and uh, I don't remember if. It was that I'm thinking about. Uh, I think most of those guys be able to deliver the weapon to come back home, uh, or, or you know, or, or head off to an alternative site. But if they're, you know, if you're actually in a nuclear weapon, uh, nuclear war, uh, the likelihood of your home patch being there when you get back is who knows, hmm. or you know, or you're. You know, sent off to head off to the alternative base to be able to land there. You know, if there's moves going off or on, it's you know, it's, it's really a, a, a real challenge, and it's really wonderful that uh, uh, this has never happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the uh, the folks sitting over there spent a lot of time uh, keeping these airplanes uh, maintained and uh spent a lot of time studying the targets and worrying about weather and you know and, and thinking about this sort of thing but uh, fortunately uh that never happened when you watch films about uh nuclear war the, the president always comes up with some codes and, and things like that and the codes get transmitted to whatever is in my understanding that those sort of rudimentary nuclear capabilities in those earlier years were once you took off with that bomb, you could drop it, or, or were there some interlocks? No, there was a, uh, a, a device that we had the cockpit that you had to go through an authentication process to be able to uh, get to the to the correct code, so that you could uh, dial up this uh, device to actually arm the weapon. Uh, matter of fact, with our squadron, the 7055th, they had a new uh, a new uh, version of, of of the B61 brought into Europe. Uh, we, I personally flew the shape uh, to verify that that that, that thing worked. Really, it, it wasn't. It was a like the shape of a nuclear bomb. Uh, everything about it worked exactly like a nuke would but there was no warhead uh, and so and so how but did, we had to we had to verify that that thing actually worked we certified that how did it work then in terms of line of sight i mean you're if you're low level nowadays you've got satellites you can transmit uh, messages to and therefore they can sort of you know you've got line of sight pretty much anywhere um, but how did line of sight work, and and how I mean, how did you uh, administer? You've got all these separate aeroplanes flying their own routes against their own targets with their own weapons. Was there? How did how did, the, did it all get transmitted? How did anyone know who was talking to who, and and and, and when they were supposed to be tuning in to get their code or whatever? Well, that yeah, that was uh, they had deconfliction. Con- uh, you know, it's, it's not only the air force, but uh, there's other. 
other other folks that were loaded uh, as well uh, with uh, with nuclear weapons, and there were there were deconfliction uh, conferences that took place with uh, specific targets being assigned to specific units, uh, and uh, you know. But would um, because you could be on the radio all day long, authorizing hundreds of tactical nuclear weapons to be released. Um, was there no way of? I mean, would your code be the same as someone else's code? So everybody in this squadron has the same code, and, and they've all only got to listen to one message, rather than. No, there was all there. It was all different. Wow. If I remember right, there was everybody had a you had your own unique. Right. So what what were the the challenges of that mission then? Uh, I'm assuming low level navigation in weather. Uh, I know, and I know that you know they lost F104s flying into the ground in those sorts of conditions. Um, how difficult was it, and what you know what were the challenges? You know, it's exactly that. You know, to keep yourself from hitting the ground. Uh, one of the jobs that we did as a uh, F104 instructor pilot chasing these guys. I, we had in Europe. We had uh, uh, depending upon your experience, uh, a different amount of weather that you were permitted to fly in. Uh, and and uh, a junior officer uh, that's just beginning would not to be able, not allowed to fly at uh, in certain weather conditions. Uh, when I got there as a uh, instructor pilot and and uh as well as a weapons evaluator i had what was called a black card and in other words i could take off at any weather mm. it was a, my personal decision and uh you know and so i had my own uh, i basically used uh, the, the same limit that i would have if i were you know, flying a t-39 which i was co-located Within Europe, I flew I flew all over Europe in a T thirty nine as a as a pilot, and uh, you know, so I I I, I if it was a hundred and one, a hundred feet overcast and one mile visibility or right at that, I'd go. Mm. And uh, the squadron commanders always put uh, the ju- most junior officer uh, as you know to fly with at that. And that's a much lower than he was permitted to fly with on his own, and much poorer weather than he was allowed to fly with on his own. And we'd take off, he'd take off, and I'd be right on his wing, and and and, and, and uh, fly low level. And he's looking at the radar, the radar returning his map, and he's guiding himself, maybe in the clouds. At 500 feet, you know, and he's running around about 480, 500 knots, uh, and, and I'm flying with him, looking at my own radar and paying attention to where he is so I don't hit him, and uh, and to be able to uh, check on how well he's doing on his navigation, where he's on course, making his turns on time, and all that stuff. That was my job. Was to, to verify that that man was able to fly that route in poor weather, and uh, so we go all the way around over and get up to the gunnery range, and and he pull the nose up and 
drop his uh, dummy, his uh, practice bomb off, and the, the range tower would uh, call up the hit. You know where you know his his range score, and I jot that down, and I drop down, and I, and I note the time that the the bomb went off, and uh, and so this was all part of the grading criteria. Turn around, come back, and land, and in very very poor weather. And, uh, and I don't think I ever failed anybody on their navigation ability. Not not there. I did that at uh, McConnell, but that's a different story. <laughs> and I have four five. Yeah. But so anyway, that's uh, being able to navigate low level, high speed, in and around clouds, not only clouds but mountains. Hmm. Uh, you know that that is a that is a, that is the challenge, you know. Of course, dropping a nuke bomb. Well, there is a challenge. Let's can we deal with those one one at a time then? So, in terms of the challenge of navigating in low level weather, you, you've already said that you use the radar to help. You know, sort of you find your way. You've got a a Doppler system that with an arrow presumably on the ADI that points in the direction of where you've got to go. What, what do you see on that radar scope then? Uh, I, I suppose most people who have not done it before, including myself, imagine that you get a nice clean picture out of the radar which shows you where the end of a river is. or and you, So if you wanted to sort of f- flow down that river and, and sort of fly between valleys or whatever you could do, or in, in a valley between hills you could do, how, what does it actually look like then when you're using the radar to navigate at low level, is there a lot of interpretation required? Is it very obvious? No, it wasn't. In many cases, it wasn't very obvious at all. You had to, that was a learned technique, uh, being able to learn how to read the radar and uh, to realize uh, what, what it is that you're looking at. And, um, and it's, it's it's almost like a, a learning a whole other language on its own right. because the, the the radar display is uh, is is not look it's not like well now they have uh, really great radars where you get a terrific return but in those you know good definition and all that stuff that wasn't the case in this particular radar in those years. Uh, you know, we're talking stuff forty years ago. Here's this. <laughs> did did, uh, did at any point? Uh, I'm not trying to be flippant, but did at any point while you were doing these things, did you reflect on the fact you know uh, you're doing well to still be alive? I mean, that's that sounds because you're you're not trusting the the very inexperienced guy to not crash you into a hill, but you kind of are trusting the very inexperienced guy to not crash you into a hill while you're double-checking his calculations by looking at your own radar and staying visual with him. Did you did you ever come back from any of those sorties and think, well, um, how far, how many more times could I do this before I, I become a statistic? I never thought about it. You never once. thought about that? Wow. No. I had a squadron commander uh, one time, uh, we were sitting there and uh, watching these guys take off in the rather poor weather. And the, the, the squadron commander looked at me and he says, Denny says, I hope those guys realize they're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> so what about the what about the nuclear delivery profile then? Why was that challenging? What did it look like, first of all, and, and, and why was it challenging, secondly? Well, there was, it depended upon the target. Uh, 
uh, we had ba basically two types of deliveries. Uh, one was a radar laid-on, which is just uh, fly right straight over the target. You set up your your uh, weapons control panel, and then when you got to the point where uh, the uh, the machine is ready to release them, uh, the weapon you, you hit the pickle button, and and the and the and the bomb would release. But you just fly right straight over the target and disappear over the other side. Uh, the other was a, 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 a lag, which is you pull it up, and the computer would decide uh, after you you know when when to drop the bomb, and the bomb would come off. And, which I've done this with uh, with the shapes, the actual weight of the weapon, and, and, and there's no doubt in your mind that that thing is gone. It's I mean it'll it'll, it'll give you a good punch. And, uh, and and then you you do your breakaway maneuver that's you know for that particular target to a very specific heading uh, and throttle position bang <laughs> and get to get your tail onto the target uh, as as the uh, weapon uh, goes off and so that it, it you know it, it comes at your rear. Were you during that? Um pull up then or pitch up or whatever you call it pull up um you're, are you following needles on the artificial horizon the same way as you would in ILS so that you're you've got the right g-loading you've got the right uh, pitch rate uh, those sorts of things or were you just no, pulling I, up to a pitch attitude and then yeah exactly right and the heading yeah okay. you know the, the, yeah, I don't remember any you know crosshairs or anything like that it was just strictly uh uh on a specific heading and uh, to a specific uh, climb attitude. Were you? Was it realistic then with this uh, shape? I mean, can you? Do you remember how far it would fly to the target after you'd released it? And, and was it realistic that you would actually escape the shock wave or the blast wave of the of, of the bomb when it went off? Well, if the calculations uh, we saw were, were accurate, uh, yeah, it, it was it was realistic. Matter of fact, I know that uh, people were using uh, this toss maneuver uh, in North North Vietnam uh, to toss uh, a bomb yeah. into a SAM site. Yeah, Ben Ben was going to tell me about that in my in my second interview with him. He was he he called that out as something he wanted to talk about. So, um, okay. So from a, a flying point of view, then, uh, a little bit different to the things that you had done up until that point, um, was it was it a satisfying type of flying to do? Was it something you were happy to be doing, or did you want to get back to sort of less evaluation, more sort of operational type stuff? I enjoyed it very, very much uh, for not only flying, which was, which was great, being able to fly uh, in, in Europe uh, with the with our allies over there was probably one of the highlights of my career, and uh, uh, I met some marvelous people there. Uh, matter of fact, uh, uh, some of them are, are still in touch with uh, the, to this day, longtime friends. It turns out that one of my very first F-104 students at Luke uh, it turned out to be uh, a fellow that was half Finnish right. and half Austrian. 
And so uh, he, he actually well, lived in Helsinki for some time. Over. And uh, there was a point in his life as he was growing, the parents were trying to, you know, they're sitting there trying to figure out because his mother was Finnish. And, and, and they're trying to figure out you know, well, is this, is this fellow going to be Austrian? Is he going to be a Finn? Or is he going to be a German? And, uh, <laughs> and it turned out, he, you know, he became a German national and, and so on. But, uh, you know, so it was experiences like that that were just absolutely delightful. As an aviator, then, you, you so you flew those four Century Series fighters. And I think I asked you, which is your favorite? I think you 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 said the one hundred four and the one hundred five. You were you were fond of. Um, I mean, if you could only go back and fly one of them, which one would it be? Of all the four, of all well, all the airplanes you've ever flown, T thirty eight, T thirty seven, T thirty nine, whatever. Which which one would you go back and fly? Well, I think the only one that can possibly actually fly is a F one hundred four. I don't know that there are any. Uh, I know the F one hundred five will never be in the air again. No, but but hypothetically, forget yeah, forget I, the constraints of reality. What if as just if you were to go to bed and, and dream? I, 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 I guess I'd say the 104. You know, it, was, it was the last one. There, there's times that I dream, and this is the most the silliest thing you'll ever hear. But there are times I I wake up dreaming that you know I think I can go play this thing again. There's no way. Is there no way? Really? Don't, don't you think <laughs> it would old, come back to you? That, 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 this, this old tired old fighter probably going to be able to get out there and do this. That's for 25-year-old kids, not, <laughs> not you. <laughs> that, but that's actually, I mean, that is a, a very good sort of point to, to ponder, which is, I, I, I mean, I, I think I asked one of my previous guests this, um, who had, you know, sort of been out of the flying business for some time. The first thing is then, does it feel like a dream to you? Do you? I mean, you've got your your flight helmet there, your HG thirty six, and and you've got your models on sticks. And you know, when you uh, when we did the F one hundred five interview, you had your F one hundred five, and you were wearing your your hundred missions t shirt. And um, so 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 you have all these things around you. Um, and I know you gave away all of your dash ones and things to to a local museum, which is very generous. But does it feel like it happened to somebody else? I mean, do you still feel a connection to? Do you do you feel a connection to the young man who flew combat in Vietnam? Do you think that's me, or do you think, oh, that was someone else? That's an interesting, you know, that's an interesting point of view. Uh, every day, in many ways, it does seem like a dream, you know. But it's kind of like a river. Uh, you can go up to that same river every day. And there's water flowing through. You stick your finger in there, in the river, and you pull your finger out, and you put your finger back in. You didn't stick it in the same river, but you stuck it in that first time. It's down there. Yeah. It's gone, and it can never come back. And uh, and, and so you know, just the process of living life is is, is kind of like that. Uh, I can't repeat yesterday. That even I remember it. Got very strong feelings about you know, things that I've done fairly recently, but that's all gone. Hmm. There is, though. I mean, there are programs where 
not particularly relevant to you. For example, POWs, you know, the prisoners of wars who, who, war who came back, Vietnam never really got a finny flight. And I know advance, they fly, you know, the T-38s and guys are invited to come and, and sandbag and do their finny flight in T-38. And that's pretty cool. Do you seriously think, though, that if you were put into the backseat of an F-104, and there are F-104s flying, you, you, you know, you're right, there's, a, there's a, a small team, I think, in the US that does it at least, and, and maybe others, but that you wouldn't quite quickly get, get it back. What is it, what is it that a 25-year-old's got that you in your, let's say, sort of 70s stroke 80s have not got? Well, for starters, I'm half deaf. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, my, and, and frankly, I used to have pretty, really good, I, I had good reaction type, you yeah. know, but as age has uh, you know taken you know, taken me, you know my reaction time is uh, nowhere near what it was, and so the the, the part of the one of one one of the key uh, aspects of flying an airplane is developing a feel for the flow field that's flying by that you. So I you know I I'm used to driving down the road about sixty five miles an hour and so on, but if you do that at uh, two hundred miles an hour. That's a different story because the, the, the feel of the wheel and, uh, and, and uh, the touch on the uh, uh, tires on the pavement and all that stuff is radically different at really high speeds compared to just driving around. And I think the same is true for me. I, I flew, a, I owned a Mooney for 35 years. And, you know, so I, I, I know I could, I can get back into that machine and and and, and fly it, hmm. but its final approach speed is about eighty, as compared to one hundred and eighty. And yeah. so, <laughs> do you think? Do you think the uh, this is such a silly conversation? But you're humoring me, and you've not you've not looked at your watch. So I'm going to keep I'm going to keep going. But do you think that the muscle memory would come back? The, so okay, reactions fair enough. Eyesight maybe not as good as it used to be. Hearing's not as good. Um, you know, you're probably not going to work that well under G. Um, you know, it's going to be more laborious. But but do you think that the muscle memory and the systems knowledge and flicking, flipping switches and knowing where to look at what times? You know, I you know ops checks, um, fuel checks, all that kind of stuff. Do you think that will come back quickly? I think it would, but it would take some fair amount of training and, and time uh, just to be able to re, you know, re get my mind uh, uh, back into the game again. Hmm. Uh, I, I think you can, you know, you, you can retain, uh, make it come back, but um, it, 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 it wouldn't be just sitting down and being able to do it right off the bat. I mean, I don't, I don't see that ever happening. Uh, it's, but in many ways, uh, some of this stuff is kind of like learning how to ride a bike. You know, mm. once you know how to ride a bike, you can get on a bike and go. And, uh, and, and many ways, I think that this is probably true with, uh, you know, flying airplanes. You, you've mentioned the the Mooney. Uh, we've obviously skipped ahead to the present day, and we haven't talked about how you ended your your Air Force career. But when when did you leave, and and what did you do when you got out? Uh, the Air Force. Yeah. Oh, I retired uh, in San Antonio. I was actually working for a medical uh, medical officer, uh, uh, Major General, uh, a guy named Fred Fred Dobbell. and uh, we had uh, uh, this is part of the Human Systems Division. It's gone, and uh, Brooks Air Force Base. It's gone, 
and uh, the uh, the units uh, that, that we had underneath us at that time were the Aero Medlab here at Red Pat, the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Lab that dealt with uh, uh, cleaning up the facilities for the Air Force was there. I ran the Air Force Human Resources Lab, which was uh, had a couple of couple of jobs developing advanced simulators as well as uh, doing studies on people and matching people that uh, uh, for the various jobs that are in the Air Force. We broke out what the job requirements were and then measured attributes of people to match the requirements of that job. So we got the right person in the right job. Uh, and, uh, and so that was part of the Human Resources Lab but also the Aero Med Lab, I mean, the uh, School of Aerospace Medicine was there. And, uh, and, and so I, based on the experiences that I had there, uh, we, we moved from San Antonio back up into this house that I'm in right now. We actually bought, uh, uh, the bank bought, uh, when uh, I, I came from Europe here to Wright-Patterson uh, back in, uh, in 1979. And we're still in our original home. Well, in any event, uh, based on what I did in San, in San Antonio, I was asked to join a company and eventually become the director of engineering of a small company working in this area called Pollution Prevention. And uh, and this is uh, a, a kind of a, a, a aspect of, of, of pollution prevention that uh, most people don't realize. If you go at the factory uh, for the, uh, any kind of a maintenance facility in the Air Force or Army or Navy, um, they do a lot of maintenance. So, so you buy an airplane, you buy it once, but you got to maintain that thing all the time. And so every once in a while, you send it off to the to a, a depot and they tear it apart and they make all the modifications they have to make to it. There's maybe strip the paint off and repaint it, take all the grease out and redo well, it. was that kind of stuff that what we were looking for, uh, to be able to help uh, allow the Air Force to continue operating, but still abide by the, the new laws that were just coming out, signed by President Bush 41. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> looking at the, the uses of cadmium, hexavalent chromium, which is a cancer agent, lead, and many other substances. And so we went through the Air Force very diligently looking at all of our maintenance processes and figured out where and how much of this stuff we were using and then looking for alternatives to replace it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the very last one that wound up working was actually uh, in the electronic field. Uh, and that was because of the, uh, uh, the laws that were put in place in Europe forbidding the use of uh, tin lead copper uh, solder uh, in household electronics, televisions, refrigerators, and so on. And um, because of the potential cause causing cancer. And, um, and, 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 and <clears throat> the potential cause for cancer is, that, is there. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, uh, for instance, with lead, it's not a question of you're going to, it's going to bother you. It's, uh, it's actually 
how much have you been exposed to? Because that's going to re relate directly to uh, the effects of, uh, of that uh, in your body on you. And so we work diligently. Well, finding an alternative for uh, tin, uh, tin lead solder isn't an easy task. Uh, and we wound up testing the industry, actually Raytheon and all these other companies, went through well over 500 varieties of alternative solders to be able to meet the standards in Europe uh, for electronics. Well, it turns out they said, well, the uh, D Department of Defense and Space are exempt. They don't have to abide by that, which is true. Well, that's nice. But if you go to an electronic company and you're looking for resistors or capacitors, yeah. guess what? Those are all lead-free. Yeah. Because why? Well, they don't just build a resistor only for the military. They use them everywhere. And so, you know, it's prevalent. So we wound up doing a lot of testing of uh, electronic gear. And it turns out if you're working in this new age of micro-miniaturization in your electronics, the physical distances that uh, are, are very, very small inside these electronic components. And one of the behaviors of some of these uh, they, you get a, uh, a spontaneous growth of a neurodendron that goes up and it actually causes a short. And uh, we have documented cases of uh, satellites having been launched. Once that satellite is up there, you know, good luck on going back up there and fix that thing. And, yeah. uh, and, and so uh, the, uh, you have to, your design philosophy of how you work around the backups and all that stuff uh, it's, it's something uh, uh, you got to really think carefully about, uh, because you know if it, if it fails, you're done. That one's done. Yeah. You know. So, yeah. did did you? I mean, you, you obviously went through. You know, tacit blue. Uh, I would imagine. You know, so the, there was quite a lot of engineering type type stuff in there, um, uh, and then obviously working in your last role at the Aeromed before you retired. Um, but did you miss flying? I mean, so, so you know, the engineering aspect might be a challenge, might be interesting, but did you miss flying? I did. Well, I actually flew. I owned this airplane for, you know, many, many years. And uh, but, but, at the, but, but at this point, I, do I miss it? Not so much anymore. I've, I've done about everything you can do with an airplane except jump out. And, uh, and and I, I don't I don't have any plans on doing that, you know. So and, and, and I'm not at the stage now where you know, flying is really fun. It's terrific, but there's there's you, there's two cases. A guy walks out to the airplane, realizing that this is going to be his last flight. This is it, you know. I'm done. If there's another guy walks out to the airplane. And he doesn't know that it's his last flight. <laughs> but 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 interesting. So so which one are you then? Because because it could be the guy the guy doesn't know it's his last flight because he kills himself. I, I, but I, I, it, it could be he, he doesn't know it's his last flight because he loses his aeromedical his medical ex, um, certification or whatever. So which one are you? 
No, I just, I just, I, I walked, I back, you know, I just walked away. I said, did that's you? it, I'm done. Was and, it, uh, did something, did something happen in flight no, to make you do that? No, not at all. You know, I was, uh, I had my Mooney, I sold it here a couple of years ago, but I realized I was just, I was taking off flying and just boring holes in the sky. Hmm. And, and, and after a while, I said, I've been doing this for, you know, I've been flying since 1961. And, uh, and, and I've done this, I can do it again tomorrow, but hey, as almost like that, was it who, who sang that song, A Thrill is Gone? You know, it's, no idea. <laughs> But what? But what? What about your family then? You, you, we, we, talk, we chatted for about twenty-five minutes before we hit record. Um, but, and you mentioned that uh, obviously you, you have a daughter. I don't know if you have other children. But did anybody else get the bug? Did anyone? I mean, is anyone looking at you know, Granddad Denny and saying, "I want to fly fighters like him"? Or uh, are you the only sort of aviator in the family? No, I'm not. I'm not sure. I quite understood what you asked. Uh, Steve, because did, did, my poor hearing, sorry. <laughs> did anybody else get the flying bug from you in the family? Did you, any oh, of your children? Uh, no, not in my family. No, I, no not really. I, although I've had all my grandkids, my my daughter, both my daughters uh, flew with me, you know, frequently. Uh, you know, but uh, flying, uh, unless you're being paid to do it, it, it gets pretty expensive. And so even though they might have gotten the bug and they said, I'd like to fly, I've heard that from two of my grandsons, they'd like to fly. Once they uh, put pen to pencil, you know, pencil to paper and they uh, realize that this is expensive and they can't, really can't afford it. Hmm. And, and, and so th that's an issue. That's very different than what it was when I first started flying. Uh, the, the you know, I, I could afford it, work at a gas station and, uh, and, and I you know, you, you, you could do this. Hmm. Not so much anymore. One one and one last question, then uh, Denny, and then um, and I'll let, let you go. Um, but is there any was there any particular flight you took uh, or any particular event um, that really endures? Um, any any moment in your flying career that you 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 still think about, whether it was for the because it was a good experience or a bad experience? But is there any one one flight that if you could repeat again tomorrow you would do? As a matter of fact, there is. Uh, there's actually a couple, there's more than one. But this particular one is, uh, really comes to mind. And I saw this behavior happen very frequently. And that was uh, flying low level out of Phoenix, Arizona, and go get these kids up into the, uh, flying over the Grand Canyon. And they're flying a little level, zipping along, and all of a sudden the ground disappears out from underneath them as they go over this canyon. And invariably they climb. Really? Yeah. <laughs> was this in the 104? This was in F-104. And, uh, <laughs> and the other thing I would do with that is uh, get along and uh, the flying wing off of me, get to that point and just, I would roll inverted and pull down into the canyon. Oh, no and, way. And roll out, you know, and uh, not down there very far, very long, but just down enough. 
and uh, you know, just because I guess. <laughs> but the, but seeing these people just they're they're flying. I mean, they're going five hundred knots, and and the ground disappeared all from beneath them, and they take the slow. They, <laughs> Danny, it's been um, a real privilege talking to you. Four four interviews, uh, many hours of your time, um, and thank you for sharing all your experiences with us. And uh, if I can get out to, you know, the museum at Wright Pat is the best museum in the world, as far as I'm concerned. I, I've, I've spent two days there; it wasn't enough. I could do it ten 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 times more. Um, and still probably not taking everything that it has to offer. So if I can get out to Wright Pat, I'll come and say hello to you because it would be lovely to meet you in person. But I think from everybody who's listened, um, and particularly the Tacit Blue interview, that you know really um, has has had a fantastic response. So from everybody who's been listening to you, uh, thanks for your time and, uh, and your generosity. Well, thank you for the interview, and I'll try to do what I can to help you get a couple more lined up. Thank you very much. Cheers, Danny.